14,000 refugees are living in a hellish limbo in Indonesia, unable to build their lives locally and barred from coming to Australia. They can't work or study, at least legally. Many are in detention centres under strict control, living effectively on handouts. The Australian government carries a huge responsibility for this situation. In July 2014, Scott Morrison as Immigration Minister declared that no refugee in Indonesia could come to Australia. And so we've got children who have been born and brought up in refugee families in Jakarta or other Indonesian cities with no hope of going forward or back. And surely Labour must act to let these refugees come to Australia and rebuild their lives. To talk about the situation, I'm joined today by Margaret Sinclair. Margaret is an activist with the Refugee Action Collective in Melbourne and has just returned from a fact-finding trip to refugee communities in Indonesia. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. So welcome, Margaret. Thank you, David, and thank you for having me today. So you've got a lot of information that you've come back with from Indonesia. First up, what are the living conditions for the people who you met? And I know you went to Jakarta and Makassar. Uh, yes, and we also uh, went to Chisarua as well, which is inland from Jakarta. I think um, what I'd have to say about the living conditions is that with the IOM, that's International Organisation of Migration, who um, provide accommodation to um, refugees who have been through the UNHCR and detention system, that it is... 100% unsuitable for families. We have, um, you know, came across families who were living four to a room. We saw that most of these accommodations uh, had a lot of young children in them and there was no play equipment. There was nothing for the children to do safely. Some of them were going up and down four flights of stairs to... Um, get back to their rooms or there was a shared kitchen situation where they had to go down two flights of stairs to to access the kitchen which was shared among you know many different families we saw one accommodation where um, we were told one of the children had had a serious accident when he or she had gone over the railings of these stairs some of the stairs were like like ladders they were so steep uh, and the accommodation was so small that, um, you know, that the mattress was put up during the day so that there was some floor space and then put down during the night. Uh, the toilets were, the toilet and shower was just one little cubicle in the corner of these rooms and um, it was highly unsanitary, you know, because some families were trying to set up mini kitchens in the toilet area just so they could um, cook in the same space that they lived in. There was a lot of tension between families. 
and within families. So we had met a number of single families because the stresses were so great that it had split the families up. And I, I just think that it was just so appalling that the whole situation, which is 100% funded by the Australian government because they fund the International Organisation of Migration, that should all just be shut down and people should be brought here. No, absolutely. And how much do they get to live on? So for an adult, the allowance is uh, 1,250,000 rupees a month. That equates to about $100 Australian. And for children, their allowance is 500,000 rupees a month, which is um, $50 a month. So what what people were telling me was that their monthly allowance didn't cover the whole month. It covered one or two weeks at most. We were told that the, the rate that they are given is the same as the rate from 10 years ago, so it hasn't increased with inflation. And, of course, there's more uh, costs now or things are more costly now so that the allowance doesn't stretch as far. And we were also told that for people who arrived after 2018 that they got nothing at all. So for some families, when their wives and children had joined them in 2018 or later, that the allowance was just for the original person who had arrived in 2013, but there was nothing for for people who had arrived later. And that also included uh, people, you know, refugees who had Indonesian wives. So the Indonesian wife and children also didn't get an allowance, but um, the man in the family, so to speak, would only get that um, single adult allowance. And the other issue is that for people who had arrived before 2018, who were children in a family, their, their rate hadn't changed once they had aged in place and become 18. So we met people who were in their mid-20s and for the past you know, several years after they had turned 18, they were still only getting um, the 500,000 rupees a month, which is the $50 Australian per month. So altogether, it is um, a situation that has made people's lives incredibly difficult on top of the difficulty of being in limbo for so long. And the temptation must be to go out and work illegally. If you work illegally and you get caught, what are the consequences? Uh, the consequences for those um, people, and we did meet several of those people as well, is that um, sometimes the authorities would, would turn a blind eye. But um, if the authorities thought that there was a buck to be made, then they would... Um, have these people locked up in immigration detention for either two weeks or up to a month, but people could come out earlier if they, you know, paid the necessary bribe to the authorities and then they could get out earlier. So really, I mean, you can't really separate what has occurred to refugees from, from the, the corruption in the system, either, you know, from an organisation or from individuals within that organisation, whether you're talking about the Indonesian police 
or um, employees of the International Organization of Migration, IOM. There's also, I think, um, you know, I I guess there's a lot of people who don't want to speak badly of UNHCR, but there's also a number of dubious practices from them as well. So, for instance, um, there was uh, a couple who were camped out Side UNHCR offices in Jakarta. We couldn't meet them in person because we were trying to, I guess, uh, avoid the the harsh eye of, of authorities as well so we could get through the two weeks without being kicked out. But th- we're talking about a couple who had travelled to Jakarta so that the wife could receive medical treatment, but because they did it without um, IOM permissions, UNHCR weren't helping them either, so they were calling up the police to have the this couple and another family removed from camping outside the UNHCR offices, and they were taken maybe 20 kilometres away and just dumped uh, without any accommodation. They had no financial support. They weren't taken to any other accommodation, even though there's a number of accommodations that had empty rooms. And... Um, they did the, the seven-hour walk back to Jakarta without any assistance just to camp out there again and, and ask for their basic human rights for some accommodation and for for the, um, I guess you'd call it the allowance or the stipend per month. So it's, it's just a tragic situation. So who are these refugees? Where have they come from and what are they running from? Nearly a half of them or just over a half from Afghanistan. There are many who are Hazara refugees. Uh, We met uh, refugees from Somalia and from Myanmar and from Sudan, Ethiopia, from Pakistan, from Iraq. They've all escaped from, uh, and also from Iran, I should say as well. They've all escaped from wars and from persecution. All they're wanting is to have a safe life um, and to live in peace. Uh, What we got in in the sentences that they gave us when we were trying to record their messages for the Australian people is that they want a normal life. They want what normal people have. They've really escaped from the sorts of situations where their lives were in danger but in this transit country, their lives are also in danger and they're also persecuted. For people from African nations such as Somalia and Sudan, they've got a double whammy because not only are they persecuted more or there's more discrimination against them in Indonesia, but besides the 2014 ban, uh, there's also um, a ban that Australia has in place against them So even if the 2014 ban uh, was to be lifted, we also need Australia to come out and say that they are lifting the ban that they have against Somali, Sudanese and Iranian people. So it's um, it's just an impossible situation. You know, people don't escape danger just to fall into another set of, of danger. And... Another problem they face, I understand, is, for instance, the the Afghans are mostly Hazaras, they're Shia Muslim, 
and Indonesia is primarily a Sunni Muslim community. Are the Hazaras telling you that they face religious persecution too? Yes, I think particularly when we went to Makassar, um, we were told that. So there were certain ceremonies or um, religious festivities that Hazara people would want to celebrate, but they were told not to. So um, they have to hide their uh, hide their religious affiliation. Um, and that also goes for um, those refugees who are Christian and who had converted to Christianity from from Islam, and they had to hide that not only just not only from their the Indonesian community, but also from their fellow refugees. So it's just a, an incredibly difficult situation, especially when you think about how people are living because they are, you know, box upon box, you know, sideways up and down in these accommodation areas. So there's no privacy. There's no chance to, to have a, a bit of space to be able to practice your faith the way that you would like to. And there have been protests, haven't there? They, these people are not accepting the situation lying down. When they gather outside the offices of the IOM or the UNHCR, you tell me which one, what are they demanding? So the protests are happening across all the different um, cities in Indonesia on a Monday. So they have permission from authorities that they can protest Monday mornings. If those protests go longer than that into the afternoons or the evenings, that's when they can face being beaten up by police. The primary uh, call, and these these um, protests are happening outside the UNHCR offices, though the one that we witnessed on a Tuesday morning was actually a walk from the UNHCR offices in in Jakarta to the Australian Embassy. Oh, sorry, actually that might have been Makassar that we witnessed. Yes, it was Makassar. Terribly sorry, it's, That's okay. it was a very full full two weeks. They had walked or they had marched from the UNHCR offices in Makassar to the Australian Embassy in Makassar. And their primary call is for resettlement. Really, I mean, even if even if the amounts of money they received was adequate, and even if the living conditions were not as cramped, the the only solution to to ending this life in limbo is resettlement. And and I guess the call for UNHCR to help enable this isn't just about membership countries such as Australia lifting their intake, but it's also for UNHCR to process those claims correctly. We came across numerous people who had been in Indonesia since 2015, 2016, and even though they registered with the UNHCR back then, they are yet to have their first interview to have their actual claims processed. So there is no resettlement country that can take them unless they can prove their claims and have their claims heard and assessed correctly to be able to move on. 
Now, UNHCR had told these people that there's no point in them actually assessing these claims because there's no country that will actually take them. And I, I guess this comes right back to Australia's decision not just to not accept people who had arrived after July 2014, but to drastically reduce the number of people it received through the humanitarian program from Indonesia. Now, unless Australia has those talks with UNHCR and says, yes, we are going to drastically increase the intake, there's no motivation really for UNHCR to start processing these claims of people who have waited an incredibly long time. So it's a real circular conundrum that everyone's stuck in. But yes, the primary the primary ask is for resettlement. And we should remind listeners that Indonesia is not a signatory to the International Convention on Refugees, which means that the people we're talking about, the 13,000, 14,000 refugees, can't claim asylum in Indonesia itself. And they're, even if they wanted to make their lives in Indonesia, they're barred from doing so. That's correct? Uh, that's correct. So um, this is part of the harassment that people face on the streets when they're, you know, when they're told that immigrants aren't wanted in Indonesia, that they weren't invited there and that they should leave. And in fact, we did cite um, not just, apart from the UNHCR identity cards, there's Indonesian identity cards as well, and they're for illegal immigrants. And that's what these people were called. They're called illegal immigrants, not just verbally, but that's what's on these identification cards as well, illegal immigrants. And it's an incredibly harmful term to use against people who had no choice but to flee their country because they were in danger. And of course their intention was to use Indonesia as a, a staging post to get on boats and try to come to Australia. That was the game plan and clearly the Boat Turnbacks program of Operation Sovereign Border and the bar on uh, refugees being accepted into Australia means these people are caught in an absolute dead end. They can't go back to the countries they fled. They're not allowed to go forward to Australia. They're not being assessed for, in the main, for uh, acceptance to third party countries like the United States or Canada. This must be having a terrible effect on their mental status. Oh, absolutely. There have been 17 suicides over the past few years you know, across you know, Indonesian, the Indonesian refugee population. I, I guess the, the other thing to note is that um, we had talked to a number of people who had arrived in 2013, 2012, and they were actually told by UNHCR that if they did not get a boat, that they would be given a higher priority for resettlement. And yet here they are still in Indonesia. We talked to people who had been sent back, you know, from from their boat trips. They were part of the boat turn backs. And the situations that they face are exactly the same. It didn't matter if they took a boat or not. They're just stuck. For the people who um, have third-party resettlement in the United States or people 
you know, going for sponsorship to Canada. Those numbers are so few that it's not really a solution. I mean, America looks at refugees in Indonesia and say, well, that's in Australia's catchment zone. Geographically speaking, these people are in our, in our catchment zone. It should be Australia taking these people. And I, I probably would like to add to that that we also came across people who, I'll, I'll just give an example. For one of the people who had committed suicide, he left behind a wife and five young children. And for the wife and these children, because they were attached to the male's or the man's refugee case, when that person died, the family left behind actually have no refugee case. So even if they were on a pathway to America or, or Canada, if that main person whose case was assessed passes away, the rest of the family is just stuck and they would actually have to put in a brand new case with UNHCR to be accepted um, for resettlement. So um, it, it's an incredibly difficult situation when people are, are left in, in these situations for so long because people's health does deteriorate. And I'm not just talking about um, mental health, but physically as well. And there are a lot of untreated medical cases where, you know, I just can't see that person being able to survive long enough for that family to resettle in that third country. Now, you went on this fact-finding mission as a member of the Refugee Action Collective in Melbourne, and you were accompanied by Ian Rintoul from the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. I understand that in a lot of places, people said that you were the first visitors to have turned up ever to find out about their situation. Would you recommend other people to go and visit these communities? I'd probably caution that this isn't like a tourist thing. These people aren't you know, exhibits in a, in, a, in a tourist thing too. So I, I'd probably say that for anyone who did want to visit, you'd probably want to examine your reasons for doing that very closely because we are talking about extremely vulnerable human beings. Everywhere we went, we had people trying to you know, put envelopes into our hands and say, well, this is my case. Can you help me? Can you help me? There is a limit to what we can do for individual cases. And although Ian Rinter was going to follow up with a number of more more vulnerable cases that he thought that there there could be a you know a, a bit of a an angle you know such as um, people who have uh, relatives living in Australia. Some of those relatives in Australia are citizens in Australia. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, vulnerable people. There were people who had um, you know, worked with the Afghan army to help allied forces. We thought maybe we could you know, maybe help them a little bit there as well. But everyone was so utterly desperate and vulnerable that, you know, I, I think really the solution isn't you know, quite apart from making those connections between Australians and refugees in Indonesia, 
the solution really has to be the political pressure that we can bring to bear here to not just, you know, have IOM investigated for quite likely corruption and how how they're treating refugees there is utterly appalling and 100% funded by the Australian government, but also to have that 2014 ban lifted, to have people's cases heard properly and fairly, to have the, the racism taken out of the selection process so that Australia is accepting people from all nationalities, from Indonesia, and, and really to drastically lift that intake to give people a chance to come to safety here in Australia. Now, for, for the 2020 and 2021, with um, the COVID bans and border lockdowns and all the rest, the humanitarian program didn't quite grind to a halt, but the spaces that were not taken over those two years would actually equate to a number of people who are in Indonesia right now awaiting resettlement. And it would be absolutely possible, given the right political will, for Australia to take every single one of those people because sponsorship isn't really an answer for 14,000 people, even if those spaces could be found. The money that would need to be raised would be phenomenal. And it doesn't really change the sorts of decisions that Australia needs to make for, for people who are just on our doorstep needing to and wanting to come here and live a useful life, to live a life in peace, to live a life in safety and to live a life that would give their children a safe place and, and a future because, of course, we have a situation in Indonesia where uh, many children do not go to school. Uh, some children do go to Indonesian schools, but it's... Um, not really the standard of, of education which would help them in a third country because, because of the languages that are taught and how subjects are taught in, you know, that, that vocal in Indonesian language, which wouldn't help them at all in a third country. Now, on top of the mental pressures, there must also be all sorts of medical pressures as well. What was the picture that you gathered? The picture that we gathered was that um, healthcare is underfunded. So quite often people would um, get a message through IOM to say that there was not the budget for medical care. There was a situation where in, in circumstances where people needed to go to hospital, the hospital would not give treatment unless IOM had approved it. And IOM had... Um, a, a practice of switching off their phones at night so that if anyone was to go to a hospital at night, they wouldn't be able to get any treatment, even in the emergency ward, unless until the next day when the hospital would be able to contact IOM and get approval. And of course, you know, all this medical care should be fully funded by the Australian government through IOM and 
the budget just isn't there. So we had people who had scripts for medication, but there was a limit on what IOM would spend. So the more um, expensive medication wasn't paid for. Uh, we met an 18-year-old boy who had a heart operation, uh, I think a year or so ago, but needed to have a follow-up heart operation, open heart surgery, and was told that for the second operation there was no budget. So he's just left there with no chance at all for any uh, operation. I met an Afghan man who um, had cancer. Um, he had an operation five years ago to remove a tumour. The tumours have returned. It, they're in multiple organs such as the lungs and the spine. He's bedridden. He can't get out of bed. His family has to help him to get to the toilet and back. And he has been told there's no budget. So not only is he not receiving any cancer treatment at all, he's also not receiving any painkillers or palliative care. We came across children who were nonverbal and um, there's no chance at all for speech therapy because of the language barriers. So there's nothing for them. There's no child and maternal health care at all. So uh, children, the developmental milestones aren't being measured, the weight isn't being measured. We came across a woman who had given birth to triplets at full term. Weights at birth were 1.2 kilos, 1.7 kilos and 2 kilos. They had six days in hospital and then they're left to cope by themselves. There's no extra support for them. They're, they also have developmental delays and... Um, the boy in that family is definitely non-verbal. Uh, the identical twin girls who are part of that triplet set uh, did speak a little bit, but not enough at, you know, not hitting those milestones that you would expect at three years and four months. We had uh, a visit to IOM accommodation in Jakarta where people were transferred from other cities to have medical care in Jakarta and they were waiting, you know, a year or more to have, you know, hospital visits and that accommodation was as bad as all the other accommodation that we saw where they had tiny rooms and shared kitchens and the small toilet in the corner. We also visited a psychiatric facility in Makassar where we met a man who had been held in a small room for 15 months. There was a bare mattress in the corner on an iron frame and a, a toilet facility that he could use, but no air conditioning. Um, his psychiatric care was that he would talk to um, a psychiatrist once a week, but since neither of them could speak each other's language, it was conducted in English as a second or third language for both of them and no interpreter services present. You know, some of the UNHCR interpreters would uh, uh, on occasions accompany people to hospital, but, um, you know, that's not quite the same thing as someone who's qualified in, in medical terms with, as far as interpreting goes. So it was extremely poor right across the board. And it would not um, not pass even the basics 
for any community that would be there for such a long term. I mean, there are obviously children who may have been on the autism spectrum or the ADHD, but because there's no child and maternal care, child and maternal health care, there's no um, checking of any of those milestones. And even at the end of it all, there's also no support in the educational setting as well. So um, it's just a desperate situation for any children that are there, for anyone who has high health needs. There's just nothing. Clearly, Margaret, what you witnessed cannot go on. It is inhuman, it is cruel, and it is Australian government responsibility. The good news is, is in the run-up to the election, the Labour platform at least acknowledged the possibility of beginning to take refugees from Indonesia. The door has opened a very, very small way. It seems to me that people listening to this who I'm sure are moved by what you've said, or they need to support um, a campaign for Labour to lift the ban the multiple bans that you've that you've outlined, that we should be demanding that Labour acts to take responsibility for these people. And obviously, members of the Labour Party or members of Labour-affiliated unions should raise this inside their organisations. I understand that you are willing to speak to organisations in the Melbourne or Greater Melbourne area about what you've seen. People can contact RAC by emailing Refugee Action Collective, or one word, at gmail.com. Is there a final message that you'd like to give listeners? I guess my final message is that in and amongst all the horribleness, there was also, I think, I'd like to say, such a such a sense of hospitality for wherever we visited and whoever we visited. And we were welcomed in, you know, wholeheartedly. And we're talking about people who had, um, you know, money enough for two weeks, but they were feeding us because that was their sense of hospitality from their cultural perspective. And I think that quite apart from any announcements from the government, What we need is a change in our mindset. And I would like to see us have the same sense of hospitality and full welcome of people that the refugees in Indonesia showed to us. Well, we will campaign to make that a reality. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, David.